So if I were to ask you the main reason for the Bible, there would probably be many answers in this room, I would guess. Some may be, uh, it's, um, it's a book to tell us how not to sin. It's a book to tell us how to be more moral. Maybe it's, I don't even know, it's just a confusing book. I open it and it doesn't even make any sense at all. I have no idea what it's about. I just think it's crazy. Maybe it's to give us words of wisdom or maybe it's to give us rules and regulations or maybe it's to show us about this God who we kind of have some thought about but we don't really know. Maybe it's to reveal how much God hates sin. Maybe it's to reveal rules and regulations. Whatever it may be, I don't know where you're at in this room, but I want you to hear this. The main reason for Scripture is the very thing that we're talking about today, salvation. That Jesus has come, that God has sent his son to offer life and life to the full. It has nothing to do with taking immoral people and making them more moral for the sake of being more moral. It has everything to do with this God of heaven who loved his people so much that he came to set them free and give them the greatest gift that we could ever receive. See, the main purpose is to point to Jesus and proclaim God's plan for redemption. That's the reason the Bible exists. Max Lucado said this, the purpose of the Bible is simply to proclaim God's plan to save his children. It asserts that man is lost and needs to be saved. And it communicates the message that Jesus is God in flesh sent to save his children. Really what scripture is about is it encompasses one theme, salvation. From beginning to end, God's plan to redeem. See, contrary to public belief, it's not God's plan to, like I've said, make bad people good or give you a crutch to lean on or make you more moral or help you treat your spouse better or give you rules to live by or even make you less of a sinner. Well, some of those, God, as we walk with him, we grow, but that's not the main purpose of Scripture. The main purpose of Scripture is to reveal this Savior that if we will put our trust in him, if we will put our faith in him, he will do incredible things in and through our lives, and he will set us free. That's what Scripture teaches. That's why God has given us his word. In fact, it could be stated like this. It's God's plan to take what is dead and give it life. R.C. Sproul says this, God doesn't just throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls up a corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank, breathes into him the breath of life, and makes him alive. That's the beauty of the gospel, and that's the beauty of salvation. See, salvation has nothing to do with taking one who is immoral and making them moral. Or even rescuing someone who is alive and on the verge of death and resuscitating them. But it has everything to do with taking one who is dead and breathing life in them to give them life and life to the full. Here's what salvation is. To be delivered from the power and the penalty of sin and death. That's salvation. But see, as we walk through this, we can't fully understand what salvation is. We can't really understand what we have been saved to until we understand what we have been saved from. 
So here's where we're going this morning, is we're going to take the first half of this message and we're going to talk about why do we even need this thing, salvation? Why do we need to be saved? If we don't understand why we need to be saved, there's no beauty in salvation anyway. If salvation is just taking someone who is kind of bad and making them moral, there's no power in it. Zero. And so we have to understand what we have been saved from. For when we understand what we have been saved from, it makes what we have been saved to absolutely astounding. The fact that God would do that for people like us. So here we go. Are you ready? Because I am. Why and what do we need to be saved from? The simple answer is sin and death. We need to be saved from sin and death. Why? Romans 5.12 says there this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, who is not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one to come. Paul is saying that sin reigned because of Adam and Eve's sin. Sin was birthed into this planet. We cannot run from it. And because sin entered, death reigned. The result of sin is death. Adam and Eve were not created to die until they sinned, then death entered. See, sin entered the world through Adam because Adam and Eve rebelled against God. We see that in Genesis 3, 6. The result of this rebellion, according to God, according to Paul in Romans 6, 23, is the wages of sin is death, a.k.a. death was king. Doubt me? I don't know if the statistics could have changed, but last I checked, the death rate was 100%, one in one. Have you ever tried to escape it? Some people may have. It doesn't work well. You can't escape death. That was because it is a result of sin. See, man was originally created to dwell in the presence of God with God, Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God was walking amongst his people. God was walking amongst those whom he created. But sin pushed man from the presence of God. Genesis 3.23-24 says this. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And then he says this, and he drove out man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim of, with a flaming sword that turned away, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So after Adam and Eve sinned, God sent them out of the garden and set the cherubim, an angel, with a flaming sword. Man could no longer be in the presence of God because sin had separated, sin had caused Death. See, we see both that sin brought death into the world, but it also pushed man away from God's presence. We're going to talk about this in a second. To put it lightly, it's basically this. Man was hopeless and destined to die. Separated from a holy and a loving God, 
And it was because of our own working, not God's. It was because of his. It was because of what we had done, not what he had done. And nothing could restore this relationship. Adam and Eve's morality could not restore it. Them working and trying to labor could not restore it. Their good deeds and even all of their wishful thinking of what they wished they had not done could not restore what had been, what had occurred. They were guilty as charged, cut off from the garden, cut off from the presence of God. So literally the result was this. We were left to die. We were left separated from a holy and a righteous God, and it was not God's fault, it was ours. But hear this, but God, because he loved his people, could not bear the thought of that. He could not bear the thought of being separated from these people, the creation that were made in his image, in his likeness, as we saw last week. He could not bear the thought of that separation being there, for he delights in his people. He loves his people, and he desired for that to be restored. He desired that we would be restored back into his presence. It was love that sent Jesus to the cross. It was love why God sent his son to redeem what had been broken. Please hear this as we move forward because it's very important. I've heard this a few times that, God cannot be in the presence of a sinner. It's not true. It's not that God cannot be in the presence of a sinner. If God could not be in the presence of the sinner, he could not be present amongst any of us because we are all sinners. Look at the Old Testament. He was with Moses and Elijah and all these men that he encountered, that he was in the presence of, that he came to. But we have this idea that God cannot be in the presence of a sinner that's not true. Even after salvation, and we'll see lead later that we are not made righteous in this life, but we are declared righteous. See, it was the sinner that could not be in the presence of God is what it was. God pursues his people. He comes after his people. The sin had separated, and because we had sinned, because we were destined to death, we could not approach the presence of a holy and a loving and a righteous God. So God sent his son to redeem. Galatians 4, 4 through 7, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law, all of us, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And hear this, if you are a son, then you are an heir of God. Put it another way, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. How about Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And I left this out in the beginning on purpose. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's where we're going. What is salvation? It's a free gift and it offers eternal life. And eternal life involves four things. These are big churchy words that I'm going to make simple, I promise. 
justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. And each one of them plays a pivotal role in why salvation and eternal life is so beautiful. So what is justification? Justification, essentially, as we've already seen, we have been declared guilty because of our sin nature. We were bound and sentenced to death. Justification has everything to do with our standing before God and his law. See, when we are justified, we are in right legal standing before a holy and a righteous God. How does he do this? Through propitiation, where the wrath of God, the wrath of God for sin was fully fulfilled when he placed it upon his own son so that we did not have to take his wrath. Jesus took his wrath that we might be set free. So justification is really this instantaneous legal act where God says your sins are declared forgiven because of what Jesus, my son, has done. It doesn't make us innocent and it doesn't make us righteous. It declares us innocent and he declares us righteous. That's what justification is is, is it declares us to be righteous or innocent in his sight. And the only way that was possible was because Jesus went to the cross to take the full wrath of God to redeem us and set us free. Listen to Romans 5, 15 through 16. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam... Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one, the man Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, hear this, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Jesus had come to the cross to take the full wrath of God so that when God looks upon you, if you believe upon him and trust in him, God says he is justified. He is declared righteous. He is declared innocent, not because he earned it and not because he was not guilty, but because Jesus took the full weight of it to give you life. Romans 8, 33 through 34 says this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? See, condemnation is to, to declare someone guilty. Justification is to declare someone not guilty. And it's important that we understand this. Justification does not make us internally perfect or change our nature. We still live in our sin nature here on earth. We still live in that nature. Justification does not make us perfect. It declares us innocent. It declares us perfect in Christ. And it declares us righteous because of Christ's work and not our own. We will be made perfect, as we will see in a little bit, when we are glorified with Christ again. But here and now, we still struggle. We live in this realm of sin. We are destined for separation. But God says, if you will believe upon my son, 
I will declare you innocent and righteous, not because you are righteous, because I have declared you righteous. Not because you are innocent, but because I have declared you innocent, because Jesus has taken the full weight of your sin and your penalty. Hear what John Murray says. Regeneration is an act of God in us. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. The distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. This is not what the judge does. He gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. If we are innocent, he declares accordingly. The purity of the gospel is bound up with the recognition of this distinction. If justification is confused with regeneration or sanctification, then the door is open for the perversion of the gospel at its center. Justification is still the article of the standing or the falling of the church. See, all that to say this, justification does not make us good. It does not make us innocent or it does not even make us righteous. But it does declare us innocent, and it does declare us righteous until Christ returns. That's beautiful. And how is this possible? Because God imputes the righteousness of Christ on us, or he takes the righteousness of Christ and places it on us. That's justification. That God declares us innocent even though we are guilty when we are not innocent at all, he declares us innocent. Because we deserve to pay the price for our sin. We deserved to die, but Jesus paid it for us. So long to the short is this. Here is justification. The judge, who is God, declares that we have no penalty to pay for sin, including past, present, and future sins, because he has laid it all upon his own son. And that is something that is stunning that we cannot fully comprehend. We can't comprehend that kind of love. We can't comprehend that kind of sacrifice. That God would take someone like me who is so guilty I deserve the death penalty. I deserve the death penalty because of my sin nature. And God steps in and he says, you know what? Yes, you are guilty. But because you have believed upon my son, I declare you innocent. And whom the son sets free is free indeed. Go free, my son. Because you are no longer under the penalty of sin. The second thing we see in eternal life is adoption. God makes us members of his family. And this is amazing. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Did you know that this is God's heart for all of his people? To take people who were part of the family of darkness, who Satan himself was their father, and adopt them and steal them from darkness and put them into great light and call them his own. When he takes you and he adopts you and he takes you as his own, not just does he take you, but he makes you a co-heir with Christ, his own son, that everything that is Christ is now ours. Adoption does not come through the works of righteousness, but through faith in Christ. 
Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. How about John 1.2, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, one of the greatest privileges of adoption is we're able to speak to God and relate to him as a good and loving father. And I understand that there's maybe some people in this room who did not have a good experience with a father. Maybe there was great pain there and you've placed who your father was and you placed that on God and thought that God was the same type of father. I'm here to tell you that it could not be any further from the truth. He is a good father. He is a loving father. He will never let you down. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will be right there with you in your pain. When you're struggling, he's there. Maybe you didn't experience that. Your father was nowhere around. God is there. He has adopted you as his own. And when he adopts you as his own, all things that are his are now yours. He's there fighting for you. And we're also able to be led by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, who is our strength and our comforter. So really, the gospel can be summed up with this message of adoption, which is God giving those who had no hope and no home and no father hope, home, and a father. It's part of the beauty of salvation. The third thing is this, sanctification. You're like, oh, another one of those churchy words. Yeah, it is, but it's also a beautiful word. And as we're going to see, I'm going to make it simple. But I want you to think about this for a second. A new survey found in 2020 said this. 70% of Americans say that they became a better person in 2020. Another poll found 81% to say that they believe that man is inherently good. 75% believe they themselves are fundamentally good. And this one... This one is my favorite. This one's just like amazing. Hear this. 46 took it a step further and they said they themselves were better than anyone else they knew. (laughs) I mean, wow. Pride? I don't know. I mean, scripture says something about like regard others as better than yourself. But 50% of Americans think, man, I'm just the coolest thing since sliced bread. No one's cooler than me. I'm the best person I know. I was thinking about that. I was like, good grief. I mean, I am not the best person I know. I know that for a fact. (laughs) But all that to say, like, people want to better themselves. It's in us to want to be better people and to do good works and to do these things. The problem is these good works get in the way of salvation because we think that becoming a better person means that we come into right standing with God. And it is not true. This is all based upon carnal, like just trying to make myself a better person. See, sanctification is basically a big word for this. That your life reflects more the image of Jesus the more you walk with him. I'll say it again. Sanctification, the big churchy word that doesn't need to be a churchy word, is a definition of your life reflects more the image of Jesus the longer you walk with him. See, it's not becoming a better version of you. It's not trying to strive to be a better person. It's walking with Jesus and coming alongside of him, being in him. And as he transforms you, you naturally become more into his image. Why? Because you were created in his image and his likeness. 
And if you've been saved for a very long time and your life does not look any more like Jesus than when you first thought you were saved, then I would question, you really need to question, are you saved? Because a part of salvation is as you walk with God, you are refined, your life looks different. You are not your old self. You have been regenerated. You have been all made all new. And there's this big thing in this culture of, oh, I can, have, I can have Jesus and I can eat my pie too. Jesus is just one of my slices and three quarters of my pie is over here. It's not salvation. It's not eternal life. The Bible is very clear that if we are in Christ, we will look different. Our lives will look different. We will reflect the image of the one who made us. It's a process Hear this, you will not be made into the image of Christ in this lifetime. It's impossible, but you will look closer to him next year than you did last year. And if you don't, you may not be walking with Jesus. He wants your heart. He wants everything about you. And the amazing thing is there's so much joy in sanctification because as we reflect the image of Jesus, it produces joy, it produces peace, it produces everything that we long for. But if your image does not look like Jesus, you're probably not walking with Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, sanctification continues throughout life and it is completed at death and glorification, which we will see in a second. So really, sanctification can be summed up with one word, obedience, not convenience. If we are being obedient to the things that God has called us to do, we will reflect his image. We will look more like him. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's interesting here that Paul says, my beloved, um, as you have always obeyed, as when I was with you, but he says, now that I'm gone, I, see, I ask that you would obey even more. Here's the easy thing to do in Christianity. When I'm around my Christian friends and I'm, when I'm at church, I'm really good at obeying. I'm really good at knowing the things to say, the answers, these faith answers, these answers of, oh, glory to God in the highest on Sunday morning. And then Wednesday rolls around and you're around people that are hurting and in need of hope and looking at you for something that they want that they don't have. And then we just don't obey. We just kind of ride it off like, ah, it's okay. I'll do my church thing on Sunday morning. Did you know that the church advances when God's people are obedient 24-7, 365? That's what Paul's encouraging right there. He says, just because I'm not here, just because I'm not around you, your obedience should be even more. Why? Because you are looking like Jesus. You are being sanctified. You are being refined into the image of who he is. Don't miss this, that sanctification brings joy 
to us. The more we reflect the image of Jesus, the more joy that exudes. And the last one is this, church word number four, glorification. Who wants to define it? Raise your hand. You can come up to the stage. Oh, man, no one? Oh, there's one right there. Oh, you don't? Now you're, now you're regretting? Okay, well, I'll, I'll tackle it. See, when Christ redeemed us, he did not just redeem our spirits and our souls. He redeemed our whole person, and that includes the redemption of our bodies. Therefore, the application of Christ's work of redemption will not be complete until Jesus returns. This is glorification. When Jesus returns and all the things that don't work and all the pains, all the hurt, all the tears, not being able to walk, cancer, sickness, whatever it may be, will be gone. It's part of eternal life that we don't live for this world. We don't wait on these temporary things that we have a hope that is not here. We have a hope that is based in this king of glory that when he comes back to rescue his people, we will be made completely new, perfect, without blemish, spot, or wrinkle. We will be glorified with Christ when he returns. It's basically a big word that the day we receive our resurrected bodies when all is made new there's been a lot of hurt and a lot of pain in our church lately. Man, this has brought me such hope. And I hope it does you if you're in this room and you're struggling with something and you don't know the answer for it. That there will come a day if you are in Christ, if you know him, if you have placed your faith in him, that all will be made new. It will be perfect and redeemed. Hurt will be gone Memories of hurt will be erased. You cannot experience pain. You cannot experience suffering because you have been glorified with the one who has created you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then Paul says this, Therefore encourage one another with these words. Why encourage? Because it's real. Because it's true. And he knows the pain. He knows the hurt. He knows the struggle. He knows the lack of understanding. He knows the things that we struggle with. And he says, encourage my people in this, that there will come a day when Jesus returns and all will be made new. And all who did not bow their knee to the king will regret and wish that they did. Because for the saint, for the one who is redeemed in Christ, they will rise to glory with Christ. To the one who is not, they will fall to separation from Jesus forever. And this place is unlike anything that words can explain. The darkness and the hurt and the separation. But if you are in Christ, you will be glorified for on that day... The last enemy will be defeated. What's the last enemy? According to Paul, it's death. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. 
Then comes the end when he, who, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Then verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what salvation does. Frees us from the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55 says this, when the, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the same that is written, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Listen to this quote from Wayne Grudem. Glorification can be summed up in this way as we begin to wrap up. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, therefore giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Oh, what a day that will be. We can't even comprehend it, guys. We cannot comprehend perfection in the way that Jesus is talking because this world is so far from perfect and it's so filled with hurt and pain. We cannot comprehend it. But I promise you this. The day is coming when all will be made new. The question is, do you know this king? See, for all of these beautiful aspects of salvation and eternal life only occurs to those who have a saving faith in Jesus. This is not some universal gospel where all these things are just yours because you were born a Christian. It's not Christianity. Jesus says, if you want to come to me, you have to deny yourself. You have to lay down yourself and come to me. You have to believe that I am who I said that I am. You have to trust with everything in you that I have come to save and set you free. That the life that was once yours is now mine. That you are now a servant of the most high God, not a servant of yourself. That's a saving faith. Because if you refuse to bow your knee, you will live this life bound to sin and death with no hope of redemption. None. See, a saving faith is more than a knowledge of the facts about the gospel. It's even more than the approval of facts of the gospel. You must depend upon Jesus to save your soul. A saving faith could be this, that you trust Jesus as a living person for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. See, the main concern for the unbeliever, if you're in this room this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, is you just have to realize the fact that your sin has separated you from a holy and a righteous God is just how it is. If anyone tells you differently, it's heresy, it's false, and it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. We are not good people inherently. We are not moral people, and your moral behavior cannot earn right standing with God. There's one thing that can earn your right standing with God. Has Jesus atoned and paid for your sin? And if he has not, you are guilty as charged, and you are strapped to the electric chair waiting for it to be turned on. But if you will believe upon the finished work of Christ, he will say, I declare him innocent. I declare her 
innocent. She is mine. Unstrap her from the chair. Unstrap him from the chair because I have chosen him because he has believed upon my name and you will be declared innocent in a moment. But if you refuse to bow your knee, you will sit in the electric chair until you breathe your last breath and there will be no hope in that. See, for this to occur, salvation, you must trust in Christ, not just a belief in the facts about Christ. There's a whole lot of facts in this Bible. There's a whole lot of words in this Bible when people can say, oh, man, that's cool. It's kind of a historical book, and I believe that. I believe maybe that Jesus walked the earth, and I believe that there is a God somewhere out here. But if you do not know Jesus and trust him as your Savior, it's all null and void because you could have this Bible memorized from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation and not have a relationship with Jesus. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you are stranded and destined for hell. See, the word trust is really better used in this culture, a contemporary culture of this fleeting words of faith and belief because there's so many different interpretations of what is faith, what is belief. See, I could believe that Helena is the capital of Montana and I could believe that seven times six is 42 and have no personal commitment or investment in that. I could just believe that it's a true fact but it doesn't change me. It doesn't do anything. See, the word of faith, on the other hand, can often be used in today's culture to refer to some irrational commitment to something that in spite of strong evidence against it, that it's going to come true. I'm a Seattle, I'm a Seahawks fan, and this season has been brutal. And I've had many people say, ah, don't worry, man. There's a, have faith, like they'll make it to the playoffs. And I'm like, there ain't a chance that we're making it to the playoffs. You can tell me to believe that in faith, but it's completely irrational because there's not a chance. See, sometimes that word faith is pumped in this culture of just believe on something that is totally irrational and believe it to be true. I'm here to tell you this morning, this thing called the gospel, this person called Jesus, this book called the Bible is based upon facts and it's not irrational. It's completely true. And Jesus says if you will believe in me in the sense of not just believe that it's I was here one day, but believe in me in the fact that I will place my trust in you. I will place my hope in you. All the world can be stripped away, but I have Jesus. That's what it is to trust, and that's what it does to save. See, trust is closer to the biblical idea of how we approach God and salvation. So I want to ask a question this morning. Maybe you're in this room for the first time, and you have no faith with Jesus. Today is the day. Today is the day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. All you have to do is put your complete trust and say, I don't even have it figured out, God. This makes no sense to me. That's okay. That's the beauty of the journey with God is he says, just come to me. I'll fix you. I'll do all these things. You just got to walk with me. You just got to surrender. You just got to believe that I am who I said I am. And then I will do my work. But don't believe in him as some made-up character and some words in a book. Believe upon him as the living son of God who has come to set you free so that you may be declared righteous in the sight of God. 
the band wants to come up. John 3.16 says this, for God so loved the world, you probably know it, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Sometimes I think we read this verse as, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes him should not perish and have everlasting life. There's one big word in here that is very crucial. Believes in him. Not believes him. Not believes that he walked this planet. Not believes that he's the God of the Bible. Not believes that there is a God somewhere. Not believes that Jesus is this figure that was once here. But believes in him. If you don't believe in him, you cannot be saved. See, the Greek phrase could actually be translated believed into him. And sometimes I worry that there may be a bunch of people that walk this life and say, oh, yeah, I know that Jesus, I believe him. What do you believe him for? Like, what is it that you believe him? But do you believe in him? Do you believe that he is the son of the living God who has come to set you free? Do you believe that in him is hope? Do you believe that in him is purpose? And do you have this sense of confidence that your life and your salvation is based upon one thing, one person that's in Jesus alone? That's the question this morning. See, faith is not some intellectual ascent of knowledge, but rather it's a personal Trust in Jesus himself. I went to cemetery, I mean seminary. Sorry, I didn't mean for that to escape. And you know what I saw in cemetery, I mean seminary? I saw a lot of people that had a huge intellectual ascent. I saw a lot of people that could explain glorification and sanctification and pneumatology and hamartiology. Any aspect of systematic theology. They had everything, but knowledge. You know what they didn't have? A heart full of Jesus. People ask me all the time, what was the one thing you learned in seminary? What would you give me? I have people that come up, hey, I'm thinking about going to seminary. What words of advice would you say? You know what I tell every single person that asks me? One thing I learned about cemetery, seminary was you can go there and you can be filled with a head full of knowledge and leave with a heart empty of Jesus. You know what salvation is? It's not a head full of knowledge. Well, knowledge brings us to a Savior. It points to him. Yes, he is true. This is factual. There is prophecies in this book that are astounding. There is truth in this book that is amazing. This king of glory who has come. But the facts, the knowledge, the intellectual ascent saves no one. 
There's a reason, Jesus said, when he returns, many will say, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. I did miracles in your name. I cast out demons in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Why? Because it was all an intellectual ascent. It was all so that I could defend my faith and I could preach to my neighbor. And if someone asked me a deep theological question, I could defend it and not look like a fool. And while the whole time the 12 inches from your heart to your head kept you from a real thriving relationship with this king of glory, Jesus, who has come. So here's the question this morning. I don't care if you've been in your seats for 45 years or three years or this is your first day. Jesus is not concerned with your knowledge about him. Your knowledge does nothing. He is concerned with how you come before him, how low you will bow, how great you will trust him, and what you will give your life to. It's very dangerous, guys, to be in the church your whole life because you become numb after a while. So please, 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 here's my plea. If this morning you, that's you, recommit your life to Christ this morning... Say, God, I'm yours. I'm tired of the ball games. I'm tired of these games that I play in my head. I'm tired of it sounding good and I obey on Sunday and I don't on Wednesday. I'm tired of it, God. I am yours. You are my king and my Lord. I will bow low to lift you high because my intellectual ascent is nothing before the throne of God. Are you in him this morning? Do you believe in him? Not believe him. Do you believe in him? For yours is the kingdom of God. God, I thank you for this morning. And oh God, how I pray in this room, God. If there is someone who is far from you, would you draw them to yourself? Would you do a mighty work in this room, God? Would you show me, would you show each person in this room that knowledge is nothing? Intellectual assent is nothing if we don't have you, Jesus, if we're not in you. So God, I pray in this room right now by the power of your spirit that if there's someone in this room that is not saved, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would say, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that I'm separated from you and headed and destined for separation from you in sin and death. But I confess, I believe, I trust my life to you. Believe that you are Lord. Believe that you paid my sin and believe that you're coming back again. I turn from my sin and I turn to you and you are now my king. God, do that in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. And if that's you in this room, there's a connect card somewhere close. Fill it out. Put it in the box. We want to walk with you. We want to do life with you. You can get baptized next week. What a day of celebration that is. Don't leave this room with an intellectual ascent. Leave this room with a heart full of Jesus and watch what he'll do.